for joining me for episode four of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five O podcast. I am your cute and cuddly host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. In this episode, I'll be talking about episode six, and they painted daisies on his coffin, and episode seven, twenty-four carat kill. Now I realized when I was doing my half-assed background for these two episodes that I haven't really been talking very much about the writers or the directors on the episodes and I probably should be doing that but too late to go back now. I'll try to be better about that in the future. However, it is a major oversight for me to not take a minute and talk about Leonard Freeman, the creator of the show, and I didn't really do that in the first episode, so I'm making up for it now. So Leonard Freeman, along with creating and writing for Hawaii Five-O, his other writing credits include Route 66, Lassie, The Detectives, The Barbara Stanwyck Show. He also wrote the TV movie Cry Rape along with Will Lauren, and he wrote the movie Hang Em High along with Mel Goldberg. Uh, in addition to his creator credits for the original series, the 1997 TV movie, and the 2010 reboot, he also has several writing or story credits for the original series and for the 2010 series because he wrote Cocoon and they recently remade Cocoon. He also has executive producer or producer credits on 144 episodes from 1968 to 1974, so basically the first six seasons, because he unfortunately passed away in January of 1974 at the age of 53. Also, he was married to Joan Taylor, who was an actress and writer, and she's probably best known for her role as Millie Scott on The Rifleman. So that's just a little background on the man who gifted us this wonderful series, and without whom I would not be talking to you right now. Okay, I would be talking to you, but not about this. Please enjoy the surprise cameo by some very loud cicadas. They demanded their song be heard. Also, the background noise during the discussion of episode 7 is courtesy of someone in my house watching the 1950s Dragnet at an incredible volume. This episode runs a little long, so remember to stay hydrated. Let's go to Hawaii. What have we got? I only fired one shot, Steve. Into the door. Steve? Yeah. First time. Episode 6, And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin. Air date November 7th, 1968. Directed by John Pazer. Pizer? I promise you I endeavor to pronounce everyone's names correctly. If I haven't heard them, I will try to look them up to see if they have a pronunciation. And if they don't, then I just wing it. I am so sorry, Mr. John. But he did direct a total of five episodes for the series. Uh, this episode was written by John D.F. Black, who wrote a total of 10 episodes for the series, and five of them are in season one alone. So off-duty Danny is chasing a guy through the streets. It's nighttime, but there are still plenty of people around. This does not deter the guy from shooting at Danny. The chase continues through the streets and into an apartment building. The guy shoots at Danny again in a stairwell. Danny chases him to his, an apart his apartment, where the guy has locked himself in. Danny shoots the lock on the door and somehow manages to hit the kid in the lower back. So when Danny goes in to check on him, he totally misses that the guy's girlfriend is standing behind the door. She snags the gun and runs off as the guy dies. Steve and HPD show up. This is the first time Danny has ever shot and or killed anyone. And it's also a police involved shooting, so there has to be an investigation. Steve checks the body. There's no identification. He and another officer go through the very small apartment. There's a, f a fresh blunt of marijuana in the bathroom. There's also evidence of a woman living there. And they also find a, a hot carburetor in the fridge. And by hot, they mean stolen, not recently used. While Che Fong and his forensics team go through the apartment lifting fingerprints uh, so they can get an ID on this kid and anybody else that might have been in the apartment, Danny tells his story about what happened. He saw the kid attempting to break into a car. He told him to stop. Uh, the kid took off. He told him to, to halt. The kid kept running. He gave chase. 
The kid shot at him twice, once in the street, once in the stairwell. He shot the lock, accidentally somehow hit the kid. He gives his official statement to Nat and while Steve listens, and they press him on certain points. And uh, the sticking point here is that Danny is sure that the gun was on the floor when he came in to check the kid. The thing is, is that the gun is missing. So they, they go through Danny's story again. Steve even physically takes him to the locations where he said the car was, where he had chased him to uh, see if it doesn't jog Danny's memory because he's missing something, obviously, because the gun is missing. And Steve tells him when a cop pulls their gun, they have to, re- even if they never shoot it, he has to know or be able to remember every single second. And so it's he needs to remember what the hell happened. So they go back to the apartment and Danny swears he didn't see anybody else in the apartment, but Steve proves that someone could have been to the side of the door and left without him seeing. So Steve speculates that that, that the girl who was living in the apartment probably took the gun and ran. They need to find her. The next day, retracing Danny's route, they find a bullet lodged in the side of a building that could have come from the kid's gun, but they need to find the gun in order to verify that. They need to find the gun, they need to find witnesses, and they need to find this girl. Well, this girl, her name is Anne, it's Miss Beetle from Little House on the Prairie, goes to see her dealer, Big Chicken, who is friggin' Captain Steubing, because she's looking for a fix, but she doesn't have any money because her, her guy there, Thad, has been shot dead, but she really, really needs a fix. So, Big Chicken, at first tells her he can't front her some, some heroin, but then relents and said, okay, I'll give you a credit until you can find a new guy, alluding to the fact that they have some kind of deal in place here. Meanwhile, the news is not very kind to Danny. This guy, Fred Vox, he's very angry on, on TV because they didn't have online back then. And he's ranting about how Danny shot this kid down in cold blood, that he had been drinking, he was probably drunk, and that if anybody else had done this, they would be sitting in jail right now, but he's still on the streets with his badge. So beware, you might be next. I mean, real fear-mongering stuff. So Danny's really upset by this guy, understandably so, but Steve tells him he needs to get out and find that girl, and he's a little bit hard on him. He then, Steve then tells Kono that he needs to produce at least two witnesses that saw this chase, and he tells Chin Ho to go help him. So Kono goes to one of his eyes on the street, which is a lady named Frida who runs a massage parlor, and she's fabulous. And she won't say that she saw anything, but Chin Ho does find a witness. His witness says that he saw the chase, but he didn't see the gun. Then Nat shows up to say that the grand jury has indicted Danny on murder in the first degree, and Danny goes and turns himself in. Steve is really upset about this, and he goes to the Attorney General demanding Danny be freed, and the Attorney General kind of cruelly lays out the case against Danny and says he's where he needs to be. He's probably safest in jail. Your job is to find the evidence. You, you need to find the gun and find the chain of evidence that leads that gun to this boy. So we know his, that he was armed because that is the main sticking point here. So Kono gets a lead on the guy's ID, finds out it's Thad. And they also find Big Chicken's prints in the apartment. They know Big Chicken used to deal and supposedly stopped dealing. The boy was clean, but the girl might be a user. So Steve goes looking for Big Chicken. Kono goes to visit Danny in jail. And by some luck, the gun turns up. It was somebody tried to use it in an armed robbery. He got it from another guy who eventually admits to Stephen Kono that he got it. He bought it off of a girl for three bucks. Then Big Chicken shows up at at five o, and Steve asks him about the girl. And after he plays coy for a bit, he finally gives her up and says that she's at Maggie's. So Steve goes looking for Anne at Maggie's. Now, obviously, I endeavor not to spoil episodes very much, but I think it's pretty obvious to say that, yeah, Steve finds Anne and helps get Danny off the hook, but I will also give you this mild spoiler. I won't tell you how it happens, but you're gonna, it's kind of self-spoiling in a way because we're gonna see Big Chicken again, and the next time we see him, he is in prison, and he's in prison because of what happens during this episode. So basically what it is is that not only does Anne help Danny get off the hook, but 
she also kind of puts big chicken on it. And I won't tell you how that happens. You really should watch it for yourself because this is a really great episode. I do enjoy it. Every cop drama needs that. They always have that police-involved shooting episode. It's easy go-to for drama because our protagonists are all cops. Lethal force is in the job description. They do use their weapons on occasion. And because they are protagonists, we automatically sympathize with them. So it's easy drama. Now, regardless of whether anybody's been shot before or after this episode, they have to have that one. And usually the, the, the police involved shootings in these episodes, it, the victim is almost always a guy. He's usually young, between 17 and 21, because they always emphasize that he was just a kid. And sometimes he's armed, sometimes he's not, or he's apparently unarmed. I know that Starsky and Hutch did an episode where I think Starsky, Starsky was the one he was accused of shooting a much younger unarmed kid, and it was uh, he was a black kid. So it was they were playing not only on police involved shootings, but also the racial tensions that surrounded it. But it depends on the television show and what kind of episode that you're going to get. Dragnet and Adam 12 focused, their episodes focus very much on the procedural aspects of it. This is what happens when a cop discharges his weapon and shoots someone. This is the investigation that occurs because Jack Webb strongly believed that the police should be held to much higher standards than the regular public. And he was, was very much about illustrating that. Other shows, they play more on the drama element, like the Starsky and Hudge episode I, I mentioned. That was very much more about Starsky dealing with his guilt, the, the racial tensions that were involved, that sort of thing. Barney Miller is the only, only cop show I can think of that actually did more than one cop-involved shooting episode, because I don't think we had another one on Hawaii Five-O. But in, they did three, and the first one was basically about Chano dealing with his guilt, because Chano, Chano ended up killing two people during a bank robbery, two of the suspects and he was absolutely devastated by it and it was showing the fallout of that the second episode they did dietrich shot a kid in the butt and he wanted to resign because he could not reconcile it with his shooting someone with his principles and then the the third episode was wojo shot somebody a guy in the arm he was and he was high it was, i think it was salvis kuzo and that episode actually illustrated the new departmental procedures about how they investigated police-involved shootings, which involved the police officer needing a lawyer, being read his rights, all of that, and also some of Wojo's reaction to what he had done. So this episode is very much a mix of the procedural and the dramatic, because we do see the investigation as it happens, which leads to Danny's indictment and subsequently going to jail. But there's also the drama element of we know that Danny is, is innocent in a sense that the kid did have a gun. So it plays on both of those. But with any of these cop dramas that show police-involved shooting, what you're seeing is, with the procedural part, with the investigation part, you're seeing the idealized. All cop dramas are idealized because the cops are supposed to be the good guys. We know in the system that we have, not always the case. And definitely when it comes to police-involved shootings, the investigation process, the justice process that goes through that is faulty as hell. So we're seeing an idealized, this is what it's supposed to look like. They're supposed to be, the cops are supposed to be put through the ringer and held to a higher standard. And we definitely see that in this episode because I have issues with it. As much as I love this episode, I do have an issue with part of it in that Danny was not guilty of first degree murder, the, whatever, I mean, it was a grand jury indictment. They were seeking an indictment for first degree murder. How is that possible when it is very clear that he shot the lock, not the kid? He wasn't intending to shoot the kid. He was shooting the lock. At most, you're going to get manslaughter out of that. So that really didn't make sense to me. There's going to be forensics there. Even in 1968, there would be forensics enough to say he has a revolver. You can count bullets left in the chamber there. Real simple. He's off duty. He's not carrying extra so he can replace it. There's only one bullet wound in the kid. There's a bullet wound in the lock. There are forensics that are going to back that up. That's not first degree murder. He was not intending to, to hit and kill that kid. He was shooting a lock. So I'm not exactly sure how that plays out unless it's the prosecution going first degree murder knowing that they couldn't get that conviction. Which is suspect. It's clear, though, that the case for first-degree murder really doesn't hold up. If anything, he should have been punished for shooting the lock. 
even when he was, you know, eventually cleared of the murder charge, he should have been guilty of discharging his weapon inappropriately because you don't, don't shoot the lock, just kick the damn door. I mean, I understand why he doesn't kick the door, but I mean, I just, I feel like it's slightly irresponsible to go shooting locks. But anyway, I don't see how the forensics would back up a first degree murder charge, even without, even if the guy didn't have a gun. They're making it sound like Danny gunned him down in the streets when that's like, I don't know, that for me, the that's just the one writing hitch that just kind of, you know, if he had shot him as he was going into the apartment, and the, you know, kid shot him back, and he went in, the girl took the gun. I could see that more than I could see there's going to be physical evidence that he shot the lock. So that's just my rambling hang-up with this particular episode. The drama hinges on Danny getting a murder one conviction or going being arrested for murder one, and the evidence doesn't bear out that it's even murder one. But hey, I didn't write it. So much is made of this being the first time Danny's actually, you know, shot somebody. I can't say on duty, he was off duty. But still, I mean, he shot someone he was pursuing after the commission of a crime. And he did, he looks devastated by it. I mean, he's really upset. And he, the, of course, the, the it hinges on the fact that this is just a kid. Because they find out that Thad's only about 18. And I'm like, yeah, he's 18 going on 28. Because they never get a teenager to play these roles and... I shouldn't say anything because I've looked 42 since I was 18, so. The one nice thing about that, though, is that you never appear to age because you look the same age for decades. Anyway, so Steve is very business, all business about this. Going through the apartment, getting Danny's statement, walking him through everything because he really does drill into the fact that he does. He has to be able to account for every single second once he's pulled his gun, whether he uses or not, he has to know. And because he doesn't know what's happened to the gun, that and that's such a huge sticking point, you know, he's he tells them, and again, this is the idealized concept of it, that, you know, a cop, when he shoots somebody, he is guilty until proven innocent. Steve hammers that home, and then later again we see it when Steve and Danny are talking after the, the news broadcast, and Danny is obviously very upset by it. Maybe you'd like to tell me why you're not out looking for that girl, huh? Steve really is kind of hard on Danny for this. And I don't know if he's drilling home the fact that he needs to be extra responsible with his with his weapon, which he should be, or that, that, you know, you better get used to being held to the higher standards or that, you know, you should never be comfortable with having to draw your gun, never be comfortable with, with having to, to shoot anybody. This is the worst part of the job, that there's the potential that you have to use lethal force. So he is a bit hard on Danny, but then we see him later when Danny does go to jail and Danny practically books himself, which is kind of amusing. But he go, when Steve goes to the Attorney General and he says, I want my man out, he's not guilty. You know he's not guilty. And we saw you know, Steve being harsh with Danny. Well, now we see the Attorney General being super harsh with Steve going, what do you want me to do? Here is the evidence. Danny was was drunk. Well, he had only had two beers. Doesn't matter. They can say he's drunk. That you know nobody else saw the the guy the kid with the gun. You can't find that gun. It looks like he gunned him down in cold blood. He he lays it out like that for Steven. Says the only person who can save him is you. You have to find that gun. You have to make that chain of evidence. You have to get him out. It's the only way it's gonna happen because they're gonna move forward with the case. So we see that even though Steve was hard on Danny. We see that he cares about Danny, he cares about getting justice for Danny, and that he cares about making sure he doesn't go to prison. Speaking of which, when, when Danny does go to jail, he's, he's sitting in jail, Kono comes to visit him. And it's a very sweet scene because he comes to visit him, he brings him Chinese food, tells him to hurry up and eat it when he, you know, before it gets cold, and he's filling him in a little bit on the case, and, and he offers to, because Steve's been writing them so hard about finding the witnesses, finding the gun, finding the girl, 
he offers to trade places with Danny, and Danny's like, I would take it, you know, straight up trade. And he's like, Kona's like, walk out the door. Just tell him that you're me. And it's a really, it is quite a, a sweet scene and slightly amusing. It's, it's a bit of a tension breaker, but it's also really nice to see the two team members together. And Kona was working to, to keep Danny's spirits up, which is really sweet. Speaking of Kona, we get a great uh, scene with him. So he's talking to Frida, who's this, she wears fabulous momos, and she apparently runs this massage parlor, and it's probably a massage parlor, in quotes. But, you know, he's trying to get information out of her. You know, what did you see? What did you see? Did you see these two guys running down the street? Did you hear shots? Anything like that? And she is giving up nothing. She won't admit to anything. And Kona's trying to sweet talk her, and they have this great interplay. How much trouble would it be for you to admit you saw them two guys running down the street? Ain't no heat for you. If I saw them, I'd say. But I didn't see. I told you yesterday. I didn't see. Frida, baby. You don't ever leave this winter after the sun goes down till long after it rises again. And you got them big, beautiful eyes. Ain't nothing on Hawaii Street you don't never see. I didn't see, Kono. I promise you. You didn't hear no shot either? Huh? You didn't hear no... <laughs> Frida, there ain't nothing you don't never hear. You can hear a quarter drop six blocks away. You're asking about shots, darling? Shots, not quarters. It's another fun little scene that, that helps to alleviate the tension just just enough. It's frustrating in the sense that Frida won't give up any information, but on the other hand, watching the two of them go back and forth is, is rather amusing. Now, Chin Ho didn't have a whole lot to do in this episode. He did um, find one witness who wasn't exactly helpful. He saw the chase, said the kid pushed him, but he didn't have a gun in his hand, so he couldn't verify that the kid had a gun. Most of the episode, though, was, was concerned with, with finding Anne, finding the gun, and finding Big Chicken. Now, I like how they did find the gun because that is how it kind of works, is that kind of luck. It's, it's a small, like, 32 revolver. You do crimes. Those, can, those kinds of weapons can change hands between criminals pretty easily. You, you, like Anne did, she sold it to get money to support her habit. She sold it to a guy who sold it to another guy. That kind of six degrees of separation happens quite a bit. So it was kind of neat that, hey, this gun happened to turn up in this attempted armed robbery and we traced it back to this guy. His name's Tommy Tommy and he sells stolen items. And Steve and Kona go to find him on the beach and he's trying to make a deal for a, a stereo, I think, that he stole out of a car when Steve and Kono show up. And Steve just wants to ask some questions. You know, he just he just wants to know where he got the gun from. That's all he wants. Well, and he's like, you know, we all know that, that, you know, stereo is stolen, blah, blah, blah. There's an exchange. Tommy Tommy's not very helpful. And a fight breaks out. And it is like the greatest beach fight scene you could ever hope for. Kono is throwing people into other people. You know, Steve's punching people out. At one point, somebody gets knocked down and, and somebody else gets thrown on top of them. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It is not the slick fight scenes that you would see, like, on the 2010 Hawaii 5 We don't have that. It's the realistic, gritty, you know, sand flying, people getting shoved, that sort of thing. And at the end of all things, because Tommy Tommy comes at Steve with a tire iron, but Steve manages to get him, get away from him and get him down with his arm pinned behind his back. And in the background, you have Kono holding two guys in headlocks under each arm. And it's just kind of a ridiculous-looking scene, but it's also very serious because we need to know who this girl is that sold this guy the gun because they're, you know, so desperate to try to find it, to find her, to, you know, to establish chain of evidence. So it's kind of great because you have Steve basically cutting Tommy Tommy a deal saying the tire iron is a felony but if you tell us where who you got the gun from we'll forget the tire iron we'll only go for the the car stereo which is you know six months easy time whereas the tire irons years of of hard time so you have him negotiating serious business Steve is very focused negotiating but in the background you have these two guys squirming as Kono has them in headlocks so that was an unintentionally fun scene
But ultimately, it didn't help them. It didn't help them until Big Chicken showed up. And they did, when once it was established that the Big Chicken had been in the apartment, Steve put out an APB for him, you know, bring him in, he knows something, we need to find this girl. And he also goes looking for him, and he goes to the saddest strip club I've ever seen. It's half full. The music, it's supposed, I mean, it's like old school stripper music, but it is so, it's sad. It's, it's a strip club on a Tuesday afternoon. It's just so melancholy there. And he goes backstage and he talks to this this dancer who knows Big Chicken. I think her name's Benita. And, you know, she encourages him. She tells him what she knows, which is he's in um, Maui. He'll come back to Oahu in, like, the next day or something like that. And she's helpful, as helpful as she can be, and encourages Steve to come see her act. And I'm just like, man, I, I hope it's a little peppier than what I just witnessed. But Big Chicken eventually does. He just shows up, bold as brass, at 5-0. You want big chicken, Mr. McGarry? Well, here I am. And says, you know, you didn't have to go to all this trouble. You should have just called and asked me. I would have shown up. Here's the thing. Big chicken is played by Gavin McLeod. Captain Steubing on Love Boat. Murray Slaughter on Mary Tyler Moore Show. I would think I would I would wager to guess that most people are not accustomed to seeing Gavin McLeod play a smarmy bastard. But he does. I've seen him do it actually in an episode of Big Valley. So he has done it, but most people don't think of him that. They think of him as Murray Slaughter or Captain Steubing. So it can be a little bit jarring to see him play this real weaselly, lousy, smarmy kind of a dude. And he is so good at it. I have written about Big Chicken because I love the character so much because he is so wonderfully smarmy. He drips ego, but he's also like, you don't want him to touch it. He's greasy. And it was, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but Gavin McLeod is sweating throughout the whole episode. Like, there, he just has this sheen to him, and it just, it embodies the greasiness. You know, if you encountered him on the street, even if he, you know, wasn't sweating, you would just go, that is a greasy dude. And it's, I mean, he does it so beautifully. I mean... The characterization he's come up with for Big Chicken is just, just fabulous. I mean, it's so, so good. And the the interplay between him and, and Jack Lord as, as Steve McGarrett, really, really good. I'm looking for a girl. <laughs> well, you don't need me to find girls for you, Mr. McGarrett. You do all right. <laughs> She's a user. Her name is Anne. Well, that's against the law for me. Having spent some time in jail for my mistakes in the past, I, I am not allowed to associate with users. Young, blonde, straight hair. Lived in a third floor apartment on North Powahi Street. Could that be the apartment where that young boy was killed? Yeah. yeah and you were there, because we have two clear sets of your fingerprints. I was just gonna tell you that. I bet you were. No, I was there once. Uh, I can't remember what for. Well, it wasn't important. But then, girl, use them. No, I can't imagine a pretty little girl like that using narcotics. Never would have guessed that. Where can I find it, Chicken? You know, I got enemies. I never know where they're going to turn up. It always surprises me. Like this pretty little young girl, for instance. Now, she may be say bad things about me, you know? Like how I'm still selling narcotics when you and me both know I'm clean. Yeah. She could say bad things. Where is she, chicken? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you because the law is cool. The law protects people from other people saying bad things. Like, if a thousand people said I was still selling narcotics, and you didn't catch me with it, the law couldn't do anything to me. Then you won't ever catch me with it. I'm going to tell you something, chicken. Mr. McGarry, you're uptight because Mr. Williams is in jail. I understand that. So, let me lighten your burden, Mr. McGarry. 
Even though she may say bad things about me, even though as a three-time loser, any conviction would close that gate for good on me, even though all of that, I'm still safe. Because I believe in the law. And I so love the arrogance of him eventually helping Steve out because he's just like, he truly believes that no one's going to, that, that there's going to be no way that he's going to get nailed for anything by helping. That no one will believe Anne if she says anything. There's no, you know, there's nothing that can tie him in that will get him in trouble. That just the sheer arrogance of it. It's so great. Speaking of Anne, played by Charlotte Stewart, I believe she was billed as Charlotte Considine in this episode. So Charles Stewart, Miss Beetle from Little House on the Prairie, you know her as that sweet schoolmarm. Man, she nails it as a 17-year-old heroin-addicted girl. She just is particularly, I mean, because we see her when she, she leaves with the gun, she runs off, and she's like hunched over in the park, holding, like in this park, I guess, holding the gun, and she's just, she screams. I mean, she just like wails of the turn of events in her life. She threatens a guy who comes up to her with the gun, you know, and then she goes to see Big Chicken and you can tell she's hurting, she's in need, uh, she's, you know, she's in a sorry state, seeing her hide out at Maggie's, the fear there, and then we see her later when she's, when she finally, when Steve finally, you know, gets to talk to her. That scene is just so, so good. She does such a beautiful job of playing this tormented, heroin-addicted girl just really terrific and I think it's her performance and Gavin McLeod's performance as Big Chicken that really just bring it for this episode. Let's go a little bit further in depth with our guest cast. As I said, Big Chicken played by Gavin McLeod. Like I said, Murray Slaughter on Mary Tyler Moore Show, Captain Stubing on Love Boat. He was also happy on McHale's Navy both in the TV show and in the movie. He did three episodes of The Big Valley. He did Three episodes of Perry Mason, including one with a very young Paul Winfield and Michael Constantine, who has been in everything but somehow never managed to hit Hawaii Five-0. I don't know how that's possible. Um, he was in the last episode of Love American Style. He also was Captain Steubing in the Charlie's Angels Love Boat crossover. He also showed up on Murder, She Wrote, Oz, that 70s show. He did four episodes of Hogan's Heroes, and he almost always played like a German officer of some sort. He was in movies like Porkchop Hill, I Want to Live, and Kelly's Heroes, and he did some TV movies like Only with Married Men and Murder Can Hurt, which was a crime drama spoof, and he played uh, Lieutenant Nojack, which was a play on Kojak. As I said, Anne was played by Charlotte Stewart, in addition to being Miss Beetle on Little House on the Prairie. She was also Nancy in Tremors and Tremors 3. That is super important. She also showed up in Eraserhead, Irreconcilable Differences, with another actress in this episode. We'll get to her in a minute. She worked with Jack Lord before on Stony Burke. She also worked with Michael Landon again when she did two, a two-part episode of Highway to Heaven. She was Maybelle on Bachelor Father. She was Mrs. Rosenbrock on Coach, Mrs. Swanson on Life Goes On, and Betty Briggs in Twin Peaks. She also showed up in Then Came Bronson, The Waltons, Medical Center, Gunsmoke, and Netlock. Nat Schneider was played by Jeff Kennedy. We'll see him in two more episodes. His only other credit is a TV movie called Lost Flight with Lloyd Bridges and Francis Ralph Meeker and Billy Dee Williams. Thad Vaughn, our unfortunate dead boy, he was played by James Lloyd Land and this was his only credit. Maggie, who houses Anne, uh, she's played by Luana Anders. So she worked with Charlotte Stewart previously in Irreconcilable Differences. She was also Lottie McGinnis in the Blizzard episode of Little House on the Prairie, which is my favorite episode because I'm not happy unless children are freezing to death. She was also Louise Halloran in Dementia 13. She was in Roger Corman's Pit in the Pendulum with Vincent Price and Barbara Steele. Uh, she did a movie called Heart and Souls with Robert Downey Jr. My sister used to watch that all the time. Uh, she was an easy rider, shampoo. She showed up in both the 1950s Dragnet and Dragnet 67, including a remake of an episode. So she was in The Big No Suicide, which was in the 1950s Dragnet, and then the episode was remade as The Suicide Attempt 12 years later in the 1960s Dragnet, and she played the same character in both episodes, Anna Marie Harmon. 
She was also in an episode of Adam 12 where she played a lady whose car gets stolen and um, the thieves don't realize that there's actually her bullet constrictor is in the in the trunk because they were coming back from the vet. She also showed up in Annie Griffith, Mayberry RFD, Ironside, and Bonanza. Sergeant Ishii is played by Danny Kamakona. We are going to see him in 32 more episodes as various characters, including two as Che Fong, uh, the forensic specialist. A different actor played him in this episode. He showed up in six episodes of Magnum P.I. He was Henry on the, 94, um, the 1994 Brooks Law revival. He was in this episodes of Sanford and Son, Barnaby Jones, and Rock Profiles that were all shot in Hawaii. He also showed up in Karate Kid 2, Gidget's Summer Reunion, and Problem Child. Tommy Tommy was played by Alan Naluai. We'll see him in four more episodes. He was had an uncredited role in the movie The Hawaiians, and he was also in uh, the two-part episode of McCloud uh, that was shot in Hawaii called The Cowboy in Paradise. Fred Vox, the very angry TV announcer, he was played by Joe Rose, and that was his only credit. Benita, the dancer, that's Anne McCormick. We'll see her in two more episodes. She did a TV movie called Isabel's Choice in an episode of Dallas. Frida was played by uh, Kuki Coons. We'll see her in one more episode, and her only other credit was an uncredited role in the movie Road to Valley. Che Fong in this episode was played by Edward Tom. It's an uncredited role, and it is his only credit. Now, like I said before, I haven't been talking too much about the directors and the writers, but I did come across some interesting trivia about our director and writer for this episode, and they both actually tie into uh, the next episode I'm talking about, episode 7. So our director, John Pazer, he has a lot of directing credits, but he also has a few writing credits, including a story credit for the three-episode BJ and the Bear Sheriff Lobo crossover run for the money. I felt like that was worth noting. Meanwhile, our writer, John D.F. Black, he wrote the Naked Time episode of Star Trek. He, he gifted us with shirtless fencing George Takei. He also wrote the TV movie Wonder Woman that starred Kathy Crosby. And he also wrote the teleplay for the TV movie Do Not Fold, Spindle, or Mutilate, which starred Helen Hayes, who is the mother of James MacArthur. And so concludes And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin. An excellent episode fills the requirements of the of the cop drama necessity of having a police involved shooting episode. I think it does so well because we get some really magnificent performances and some good moments between our team as well. Definitely watch this one. Do not skip it. Do not miss out. It's so worth it. I'm gonna tell you, man, this ain't the worst bet I've ever been on. Maybe you got the best deal in this case. Say what I'll do. I'll trade you. Dead even. You don't think I would, man? Go, baby. Walk out of here. Tell them you me, but try to look a little bit fatter, man, or they won't let you pass. Let's recap it. Gambling syndicates got big money to invest. Best buy in today's market is gold. Treasury tells us there's a big ship in the yellow stuff headed this way from Japan. Okay. Who's got contacts in Japan? Who's got the facilities for smuggling it in? Who could act as a middleman between Denison and Wong Tu? And who did Kim Tung Chang, the flicks of gold under his nail, who did he work for? Johnny Fargo. Yeah. And the word from the docs is that Johnny's been bragging he's going to have his first million before he's 30. You know something? We might just give it to him. Episode 7, 24 Carat Kill, air date November 14th, 1968, directed by Alvin Ganser. This is his second of two episodes, and written by David P. Harmon. Uh, he wrote two episodes. So a young mother buys some fish at a market. She takes it and her baby home, and when she starts to dress the fish, she finds a gold bar inside, but she thinks it's junk. Before she can take it back to the market to complain, she is murdered by a man with a knife who then takes the bar of gold. 
Steve arrives on the homicide scene and he talks to a treasury man by the name of Philip Gray because they found gold residue on a knife in the sink and they believe that it might be connected to millions of dollars of illegal gold that's floating around. The victim and her husband are clean, so now they're looking for the killer who left a fingerprint that ties him in with gambling. And word on the street is, is that he has a price on his head. Steve and company uh, bust up a game room looking for him to no luck. Man is later pulled out of the water dead. It's later ruled that Kim Tung Chang died of a broken back, several broken ribs, and a punctured lung. He was dead before he hit the water. The doc also found gold under his fingernails. Uh, in a nearby bar, conveniently close to where the man was fished out of the water, Steve asks the bartender about Kim Tung Chang. The bartender can't tell much, but he does tell him that he worked a couple days for a guy named Johnny Fargo. Steve goes to talk to Johnny Fargo about Chang, but Johnny says he doesn't remember him because he hires so many guys like that, um, and, but he says he'll ask around for him. As Steve leaves, Paul Dennison shows up and talks to Johnny Fargo. He asks what's going on because Johnny was nearly caught when 5-0 broke up the gambling game and Dennison's people are concerned about him. They don't want any connection to him. Johnny reminds them that he was the one that bailed them out by getting rid of Chang because Chang messed up killing the woman just to get the gold back. So Dennison leaves and Jin Ho follows him. We then get to witness Johnny and his boat crew plant the gold bars. The gold is shoved in the fish's mouth and the tail fin, one half of the, one side of the tail fin is clipped off. So when it goes through the cannery, the workers there know which ones to gut and take the gold bars out. The one that our unfortunate young mother bought had accidentally slipped through the cannery and made it to market. Next we see Steve meeting Danny at the hospital because Chin Ho has been attacked. He has a hairline skull fracture. From what we can get from Chen Ho, he had followed Dennis into a meeting with Wong Tu, leader of a gambling syndicate, and then he was attacked. Steve confronts Dennison about Chen Ho's attack before going back to 5-0, where Kono briefs him on Dennison. He's a lawyer and a shop operator for this gambling syndicate, which includes Wong Tu's operation. Danny comes in with the goods on Johnny Fargo. He was dishonorably discharged for illegal gambling. He worked the black market in Tokyo. He's something of a ladies' man, and he started tuna fishing two months after arriving in Hawaii, something that costs a lot of money, which they suspect Wong Tu providing. So Steve recaps and points out that Johnny Fargo is the tie between Dennison and Wong Tu. He could be used as a middleman. Danny points out that Johnny Fargo brags around the docks about making a million dollars before he turns 30, which gives Steve the idea to leave him a million dollar bait. He goes to Philip Gray to get it, but in order for that to happen, it includes an undercover agent. Steve is at first resistant, but then he relents. So Johnny ends up meeting our treasury agent, Andrea Claire Dupre. After feeling each other out, sampling the merchandise, and looking in on the money, which Andrea Claire Dupre points out is booby-trapped, she asks him if he can handle a million-dollar shipment, which he says he can. They then haggle on a price, but they don't come to a deal. Johnny Fargo ends up leaving, saying he'll call her. Everybody thinks he'll take the deal, so they then work on playing Dennison and Wong Tu by leaking information that Johnny Fargo is about to double-cross them. The sting is now set. Will Johnny take the bait? Kind of goes without saying that of course he's going to take the bait. I mean, what kind of ending would you have if he would just be like, nah, I'll just walk away? That's no fun. And overall, this episode kind of isn't fun. It's it's a meh sort of an episode. There's a lot going on and none of it really comes together and, and gels well. We've got this gambling syndicate. We've got this lawyer who's the shop operator for the gambling syndicate. We've got illegal gold. We have Johnny Fargo who is vain, smug, and arrogant. We have, you know, the treasury operatives. We have Chin Ho being attacked. Poor Chin Ho. But none of it comes together quite well in my opinion. It just, it, it's a little too busy and just not cohesive enough to have all the parts sticking together. So it's sort of a lackluster episode because of the writing and the way the story was put together. The acting is, is quite good. Everybody gives their all. Kaz Garris and Marge Doucet are both excellent in the episode. So really, it's just the story is a little lackluster. 
But that's not to say it's not without its good points. The opening scene is quite memorable because we go through the market and it's beautiful because you have all of these people, these different faces, the 1968 island fashion, just gorgeous. And we get to see our young mother and her baby. Um, and we watch her buy this, this whole ass fish for $3, which just confounds me. And then she puts the fish in the stroller. Now this is the 1968 stroller. So it's like, you know, the metal, it's a metal death trap. It's basically a metal box. There's a, there's a seat in the bar that sort of contains them and a little awning and then the basket underneath. And the baby is crying. And because it's in the marketplace, actually filmed in the marketplace, um, everything is dubbed. All of the dialogue is dubbed. The crowd noise is dubbed. So they did not dub in the baby crying, but you can see the baby is crying. They, she brings the baby and the fish home. Baby is now in a playpen in the living room crying. Now you can hear the baby crying. It's kind of an eerie element to it because, you know, there's mom, young mother, doing up her fish, ignoring the baby while the baby cries because she's probably cranky and doesn't want to nap. And we see our killer, Chang, lurking around outside and we see that he has this knife and he actually walks in the front door and into the kitchen and she doesn't notice he's there until she hears the switchblade. But the baby is crying in the background the whole time and it's really very tense and eerie because you know what's coming and this you know that this is going to have a terrible, terrible ending. And this child is, is going to about to lose her mother in a very traumatic way and she's technically going to be witness to it, but thankfully won't be able to remember it. So it's a very memorable opening scene. And that might account for why my opinion of it drops off after that, because you have this great opening scene and then it's just less than from here on out. We meet Philip Gray, who is played by Richard Denning, and we've already seen Richard Denning as the governor prior to this. And now he's playing treasury agent Philip Gray, so it's kind of weird here. I don't know, maybe the governor has a long lost twin brother who ended up becoming a treasury agent and just happened to be working in Hawaii. And you know, Steve might be thinking to himself, he looks a lot like the governor. I wonder if, I wonder if that ever got brought up in conversation. Now there's a subplot they probably should have explored. Enough about my doppelganger conspiracy theories. So in this scene, I don't know if it's just me, my equipment, whatever. I've been watching this I've been watching the show on my laptop or if it's just the, this episode in particular the sound quality isn't that great in some of the scenes and this is one of them so part of the problem here is when Philip Gray and Steve are talking and uh, Kilo are talking about the illegal gold and all this stuff basically setting up what you need to know you can't really hear it all that well and you also have an incredibly loud rooster injecting his his wisdom into the scene. He is like really, really loud and very distracting. I've watched the episode like three times now and it's still, I'm listening more for the rooster than I am to the actual dialogue, which isn't good. Fun fact though, ch chickens are very common in Hawaii and they actually have quite a large feral chicken population, especially on the island of Kauai. Who knew? So the killer is ID'd and he's connected to this gambling syndicate and they don't know what that has to do with the gold so they go bust up this game room to look for him. And the game room is basically a pool table and a couple of card tables where guys are playing dominoes. Now this is also, the raid is alternating with scenes of Johnny Fargo playing craps, giving the illusion that they're going to the same space. So I don't know where the craps table was but it was definitely not in that front room but then it's alluded to later that he was in that building when it was raided, but he got away. So I don't, it, that's kind of confusing because you actually think, oh yeah, they're gonna go raid this building and Johnny Fargo's gonna be there. Well, when they get to this building, there is absolutely nothing that looks like the crap room there, but there's a pool table and dominoes. And also half of the, the guys on the raid are wearing Aloha shirts. It must've been casual Friday. The, the interplay of the two, working the two scenes against each other, the Raiden and, and Johnny Fargo playing craps was nice. It would have been nicer to either see him escape or see the crap room where he had been and him not being in there. When that didn't happen, you were like, well, these were two unrelated events and they just played us. It didn't come off very well. Also, Kilo goes through the lineup of the guys that, that were in the game room and he's looking at all of them, he makes a point of turning them so we can see their faces. And it's like, Chang was described as being like six foot. There is not a guy in that lineup that breaks 5'10". This is unintentionally amusing. 
So they do eventually find Shang dead. They've pulled him out of the water. And Steve goes to talk to this bartender. Now, it's obvious that he knows this bartender because they have a, a little back and forth that suggests familiarity. And Steve doesn't explain why he's there asking about Chang other than the bartender deduces it's because that's who they pulled out of the ocean. And so when at the end of the conversation, when he says, oh, yeah, Chang, I cashed a paycheck for Chang. He worked for Johnny Fargo a couple of days. The last bit of information that he gives to Steve is like, you know, he paid his bar tab at the end of every month. You got to give him a couple points for that. And Steve rounds on this guy and says, he just killed the mother of a 10-month-old baby. How many points do we give him for that? And it was like, you didn't even tell this guy that the reason you were initially looking for Chang was because he was a murderer. This guy just, you know, knows that he's dead. He has no idea that he committed a crime. Why are you biting his head off? Don't take your bad days out on witnesses, Steve. They're just trying to help. He also has another slightly uncharacteristic moment because Philip Gray suggests to use an undercover agent to play on Johnny Fargo's love of the ladies. And Steve's immediate response is, no, no dames. Well, we've already seen him use women agents, women police officers before, Joyce Weber, in Full Fathom 5. So it's kind of curious that he immediately shuts it down and says no here to using a woman. And I wonder if maybe it's less sexism, more he doesn't know the agent. Because he does question Philip afterwards when Philip presses and insists upon it if she's good. So it could be that maybe that he doesn't necessarily trust this agent because he doesn't know her. So he's not he can't feel comfortable sending in her into a potentially dangerous situation. But still, just the automatic reaction of no dames. Come on, Steve. He must have been having a day. But it turns out Andrea Claire Dupree is an excellent agent. We will talk about her in a little bit. First, let's spare a few thoughts for Chin Ho. So we see Chin Ho following Dennison away from the docks. The next thing we hear about Chin Ho is when Steve shows up at the hospital, meets Danny at the hospital, and we find out that he has a skull fracture from being assaulted when he followed Dennison to a meeting with Wong Tu, and he was found in an alley by the building they had raided. He's been put on the critical list, so he obviously has a serious head injury. It's so serious that Steve goes to Dennison and has a, an incredibly dramatic moment where he confronts Dennison about Chin Ho's assault, and of course Dennison plays dumb, and Dennison is actually kind of not even paying that much attention to Steve. Steve grabs the pen out of his hand, clears off his desk, and writes Chin Ho's name on his blotter. One of my men is on the critical list that you put him there. I did. You did. If he doesn't come out of this a whole man, a whole man, you understand? Mm-hmm. Nothing will save you. There must be some mistake. No mistake. He was on your tail, and somebody beat him over the back of the head and fractured his skull. Why would one of your men be following me? Good question. And when I get the answer, don't be surprised if you're in jail for the rest of your life. You do know who you're talking to. Yeah, I know. So Steve is willing to bring the drama for, for Chen Ho, and I appreciate that. But then we spend the next, I don't know how many minutes, we spend a big chunk of the episode focusing on this gambling syndicate, focusing on reeling in Johnny Fargo with the undercover agent and everything like that. We don't hear anything about Chen Ho until we get another scene at the hospital saying that Chen Ho was coming out of surgery because there were uh, bone chips that needed to be removed. So this is part of what I mean when I say that it doesn't completely gel, that it doesn't isn't completely cohesive, is that here we have our beloved Chen Ho injured critically injured. There is no, there's no word. There's no scene. There's no little bit of dialogue that says, oh, by the way, Chin Ho has to have surgery. Nothing. We don't know anything about that until, you know, he's in recovery. Chin Ho's injury is supposed to have some sort of emotional weight and it's 
completely undercut by the fact that it's hardly addressed. And you just get this, you know, he's in the hospital confronting Dennison. Huge chunk dealing with the other storylines. And, oh, he's coming out of surgery. In the scheme of the episode, Chin Ho's injury, instead of carrying any emotional weight, it comes along more as like an afterthought of, we really don't have anything for Chin Ho to do in this episode. We need to sideline him here. Let's give him potential brain damage. We do get a sweet scene out of it though. After it's uh, confirmed that he came out of surgery and that he's in recovery and he'll be fine, Danny goes and calls May to let May know that Chin Ho will be okay, which I thought was very sweet. And I do love those little moments like that because for the most part, the show is very straightforward solving the crime of the week. But we do have those little moments, those little camaraderie moments. Kono bringing Danny Chinese food when he was in jail. The guys goofing on each other and giving each other a hard time about this, that, and the other, which they do sometimes. Those little moments that they put in, they're really nice to see in the midst of this serious business. We gotta catch a killer. Now let's talk about a little bit about the crime in question for this week. So apparently Wong Tu, who runs this gambling syndicate, has acquired illegal gold somehow. And he's using Johnny Fargo as a means of transporting it. It's hidden out under some buoys in the ocean. Johnny goes out fishing. He gets whatever gold he's supposed to, brings it in, hides it in the fish by shoving it in their mouth, and doctoring the fish so they know which one's the cannery at Wong Tu's cannery to open up and take the gold bars out, which is actually rather clever. They did it on an episode of the 2018 Magnum P.I., but they were using, they were smuggling flash drives, and Carl Weathers was involved, sort of. Anyway, even though this is Wong Tu's operation, Paul Dennison is being used as kind of the go-between between Wong Tu and... Johnny Fargo. So they're all involved in this very elaborate scheme to sell this gold. Now I'm guessing that it's either uh, Paul Dennison or Wong Tu that sells the gold. Johnny's job is just to go out and get it and bring it to the cannery for a price. So that's where they see their opportunity to make Johnny's dreams of becoming a millionaire before he's 30. Too late come true and that's where they use Andrea Claire Dupree as a buyer going straight to Johnny instead of Denison or Wong Tu. And let's talk a little bit about Andrea Claire Dupree because she is stone cold. I love her. Johnny Fargo, when they meet in the hotel room, first of all, he questions who she is and like calls the airline to confirm that she came in uh, from Singapore like she said she did and all of this. But the whole time he's like eyeballing her, like looking her up down. You know, she's wearing like a really lovely navy shift dress. It's short above the knee and some sensible heels. And that's what killed me is that he's like looking her up and down like, yeah, baby. I'm like, she's wearing sensible heels, man. But Johnny is obviously like trying to ooze the charm on her and she is absolutely not having it. Perfect, baby. Perfect. Act your age. <laughs> Maybe that's what's wrong with the deal. Being uh, sending a boy to do a man's job? Something like that. Try me. No, thank you. But I would suggest you take your eyes off me and examine this case very carefully. It's interlaced with fine little wires all leading to a very powerful explosive. And if it's tampered with in any way, it blows up. Careful, aren't you? Very. And what's really great is that she, after, you know, she's told him that the briefcase is rigged to explode, she then gets up and shows him that she has two bodyguards hidden in her hotel room because she does not mess around. She is there for business and she is going to get her business done and there's nobody who's going to, to double cross her, which I love. And then later when um, the plan is enacted, she maintains that stone cold persona through everything. So even in a more dangerous moment later on. She never cracks, she never breaks. She, she plays the part to the end. It's beautiful. Philip Gray said she was good. Philip Gray did not lie. Now you know I endeavor never to spoil, but I will say this, that when the plan is enacted, part of this plan involves a very intricate tailing pattern because we have Andrea Claire Dupre going to pick up Johnny Fargo. 
Denison and Wong Tu are following her, and we also have a fleet of cars from uh, 5-0 and HPD stationed around so they can keep tabs on, on both the money and the bad guys. Andrea Claire Dupre, yes, I will say her complete name every single time, goes to pick up Johnny Fargo. He's hiding behind a sign, and he runs out, jumps in the car. He starts driving because it's, you know, one of those beautiful land yachts where they have the bench seats, so all she has to do is, like, slide over, and he can just slide right in. So Johnny takes off, still with both Denison and Wong Tu and 5-0 tailing them, and he ends up driving into a parking garage and uses that as a way to... Uh, leave the car that Andrea Claire Dupre was driving and switch to another car and it's actually a really clever scene the way it's worked out um, except for the squealing of the tires on every single turn up and down the parking garage but most importantly it leads us to this moment yes it is the first time so we're seven episodes in first time Steve has said Bookum Dano. A truly momentous occasion and a shining spot in an otherwise lackluster episode. Since the cast, including the guest cast, did such a good job of keeping this episode from being a total snoozer, let's take a little look at them. Johnny Fargo was played by Kaz Garris. We'll see him in two more episodes. He played Hamlin Gint on the short-lived series Strange Report with Anthony Quayle. He also showed up in Gunsmoke, Adam-12, The New Adam-12, The Rookies, Barnaby Jones, Cannon, Heart to Heart, The A-Team, and ER. He played Steve Trevor in the Kathy Crosby Wonder Woman TV movie that was written by our previous episode's writer, John D.F. Black. He was in two Roger Corman TV movies, the 95 remake of Piranha, starring William Catt, Alexandra Paul, Monty Markham, Darlene Carr, Soleil Moon Fry, James Karen, and Leland Orzer. I think I've seen that one. And the 96 remake of Humanoids from the Deep, starring Emma Sams, Robert Carradine, Clint Howard, Susan Hubley, and Mark Rolston. Andrea Claire Dupre was played by Marge Doucet. We'll see her in one more episode. She did a lot of time on soap operas. She played Vanessa Bennett Cortland on All My Children, Alexandra Spaulding on Guiding Light, Pamela Capwell Conrad on Santa Barbara. She was also Jennifer Selden in the Stop Susan Williams segment of Cliffhangers. She was Kate Hanrahan on the 8182 Brett Maverick series. And she was Blair Warner's mom, Monica, on The Facts of Life. She also showed up on In the Heat of the Night, Murder, She Wrote, Heart to Heart, The Mod Squad, The Odd Couple, Hogan's Heroes, Bonanza, and The Wild Wild West. Paul Dennison was played by Paul Richards. He was Dr. McKinley Thompson on Breaking Point, which had a crossover with Ben Casey. He was also Louis Louis Kassoff in The Lawless Years. He also turned up on The 50s Dragnet, Zorro, The Rifleman, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Route 66, The New Breed, Perry Mason, The New Perry Mason, Ironside, and he turned up in movies like Beneath the Planet of the Apes and The St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Our medical examiner, Doc, is played by Newell Tarrant, We'll see him in one more episode, and we've already seen him in two previous episodes, Cocoon and Samurai, but I failed to mention him. Anyway, he only has one other credit, and that is a movie called Death House, starring Dennis Cole, and it was directed by John Saxon. And if you don't know who that is, I'm not sure we can be friends. Mei Ling Wan, our victim, was played by Lorna Ho. Her only other credit is a movie called Voyage of the Heart. Wong Tu was played by Richard Liu. He has several credited and uncredited movies. He was in the Bond film, The Man with the Golden Gun. He also showed up on Wagon Train, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Perry Mason, The Wild Wild West, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, Ironside, and Kung Fu. Lieutenant Kealoha was played by Douglas Mossman. I mentioned him in the Cocoon episode as he was in the movie I Sailed to Tahiti with an all-girl crew with Richard Denning and Zulu. We'll see him in 26 more episodes. In a few more episodes, he'll be playing either Lieutenant Kealoha or Lealoha. We'll also see him as another officer named Frank Kamana for 12 or 13 episodes and still other characters. He was Moki on the TV show Hawaiian Eye, starring Ponce Ponce, Connie Stevens, and Robert Conrad. He did three episodes of Magnum P.I. and an episode of the 2010 Hawaii 5 so if he's available, we need to get him on the 2018 Magnum P.I. That way he can hit legendary status with Dennis Chun. 
Val the bartender is Mark Labousse. We'll see him in one more episode. We've already seen him previously. He was the Arcturus construction foreman in Cancun. He also showed up in the movies Diamond Head and The Hawaiians with Charlton Heston. One of the other detectives was played by Eddie Sherman. We'll see him in three more episodes. We've already seen him twice. He was in Full Fathom 5 and Samurai, and again, I failed to mention him. But he was also married to Peggy Ryan, who plays the governor's secretary, Mildred, in the first season, and will end up taking over for May as Jenny in the second season. Dr. Cashew, the doctor treating Chinho, he was played by Jerry Tarutani, and this was his only credit. A little bit of background about our director and writer, director Alvin Ganser, as I said, already directed one other episode, he directed Samurai. Career TV director, he also directed the Hitchhiker episode of The Twilight Zone, which is one of my favorites. Writer David P. Harmon wrote a lot of TV and TV movies. Most noteworthy, he wrote Rescue from Gilligan's Island and The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. He also wrote the TV movie Honeymoon with a Stranger, which was directed by the director of our previous episode, John Pazer. And that is 24 Karat Kill, a slightly disappointing episode that has its moments and was definitely salvaged by the acting. If you're going to watch this one, all I can say is don't get your hopes up too high and truly enjoy the badassery that is Andrea Claire Dupre. Also this, one more time. Welcome, Dano. How about you 5-0? Hey, Danny. We just got word. Chin's out of danger. Oh, what a relief. And just like that, episode four of Bookum Dano is over. I hope you enjoyed yourself. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, you can check me out on my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. I have a whole page there dedicated to the Bookum Dano podcast. I also have a page dedicated to my rerun junkie posts, so you can head over there and see what I wrote about Big Chicken and everything else rerun related. And while you're there, feel free to check out my other posts, my other published work, my Patreon, and hey, you can even buy me a coffee. But if you'd rather be exposed to me in 240 characters or less, you can always follow me on Twitter at KikiWrites. Between Big Chicken and a loud-ass rooster, there was a lot more poultry involved in this episode than expected. And that's why you should keep listening to the Bookum Dano podcast. You never know what you might get. Until next time, aloha.